The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Now, Acts is the incredible story of the early church in the years immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection. And this is how we're going to summarize Acts. We're going to return to this little statement again and again as we go about our study through this book. This is our Acts summary, and it's incredibly wordy and dense, but you try summarizing a book of the Bible. Our Acts summary. Acts is the unfolding of the Father's sovereign plan to send his spirit to create and commission a people to make Jesus known. Acts is the unfolding of the Father's sovereign plan to send his spirit to create and commission a people to make Jesus known. Known. And what we hope is that this is a timely and helpful study for us because if you've been paying attention, there's tons of questions about the church today. For instance, is there a future for the church in the West? What's the future of the church in the United States? What's the, what's the, what, what does it look like to be the church in light of the changing environment that we find ourselves within? You read about declining attendance. You read about people leaving the faith, friends, family, faces we know, abandoning Christianity. We, we know about cultural tides and pressures mounting against the faith, particularly as it relates to sexuality. And there's angst, frankly for good reason, there's angst about the future of the church. Can the church survive this? There's questions about the definition of the church. COVID has affected things. COVID has affected the way that we think about church. You can, you can read all, uh, all over the internet about the, the future of the church is online church, which requires us to ask questions about what the church even is. Like, fundamentally, what does it mean to be the church? And then specifically, our situation as the church at Greer Station. We're fitting to move into a building later this year, Lord willing. What does it look like for us to go be the church there with our own address for the very first time? Acts, unique in all the Bible, speaks to every one of those questions. Speaks to all of that. Look at verse 1. I love this. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, Acts is unique for several reasons. One of the reasons that Acts is unique is it's the only sequel we have in the New Testament. Luke, the guy who wrote Acts, also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so, at the beginning of Acts, Luke is picking up exactly where he left off. He says, Theophilus, we don't know who Theophilus is. He's some uh, likely Roman official who was a convert to Christianity. He writes in the first book and says, I'm, I'm writing to you about Jesus to give you reassurance about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then he says in the opening of this book, O Theophilus, I wrote to you in the Gospel of Luke about all of the stuff that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the implication there? Is that Luke sees Jesus' continuing work happening through the church. And so for us, as we read Acts, we're reading about Jesus' continued work through his Holy Spirit, through his apostles, through his church by extension, and by extension, and across the ages, through us. We read Acts as people who understand that the same Jesus who is, who is doing and teaching in the Gospel of Luke, the same Jesus who is ascending and sending his spirit in the story of Acts, is the same Jesus that operates in and through us, present tense, 2022, Greer, South Carolina, A.D. 
And so there's always encouragement for us to be, uh, uh, to be found for us by reading and studying the book of Acts. There's this guy named Desiderius Erasmus, which is top five name all time. But Erasmus Desiderius, what's even, Desi, I guess? He was a kind of pre-reformer. He was writing in the 1500s before the time of people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and those guys. He was writing in a time of decadence and decay and abuse within the church. And he said that Acts contains within it the foundations of the newborn church through which we hope that the church in ruins will be reborn. Acts contains the foundations of the newborn church through which we hope that the church in ruins will be reborn. So there's a long tradition in Christian history of Christians going to the book of Acts to be encouraged, to be renewed in their their commitment to be the church, to to, to read it and to kind of read themselves into the story and see that the same Jesus who was working then is the same Jesus who's working through us now. Now, I'm I'm, I'm certainly not saying that this church is in ruins, right? But I am saying that in studying Acts, We can be refreshed and encouraged, and we can have a lot of those questions that we asked a moment ago answered for us. Chapter 1 sets up all of Acts, and we see how unique Acts is amongst all New Testament books. And in the first two verses of Acts, we're kind of clued in into three very important truths that kind of offer us a a, a through line all throughout the book of Acts. We already read verse 1, where Paul says that he's speaking to Theophilus. We identified that Acts is unique because it's the only sequel in the scriptures. But Acts is unique also because it's what, what, what one author called a hinge book, reflected in these verses. Now, this is the, the moment, the, the, the inflection point, the hinge between the life and ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the apostles by the Spirit and the birth of the, and the, birth of the church. Excuse me. This book also wrestles with questions at this new stage in Christian history. Questions like, how are we to act now that Christ has left us? What would God have us to do now that Christ has ascended to be with the Father? What is the future of the kingdom and the future of God's people? The book of Acts is devoted to answering those kind of questions. And then in verse 2, we're given three crucial bits of info that brilliantly set up the rest of the chapter and Acts more broadly, and as I said, give us a kind of a clue as to the, the big ideas present within the book. It says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when Jesus was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So right there in like seed form, we have three important ideas established. King Jesus, his Holy Spirit, and his people. More on each of those in a second. Verse 3. Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now again, Acts kind of, verse 3 kind of helps us okay, uh, locate where Acts is placed in the scriptures with, with the timeline of the Bible. This book, again, a sequel to Luke, begins about a month after Jesus' death and resurrection. And again, The disciples are wrestling with all that's happened and wrestling with with what it means now to be his people now that Christ is ascending. Questions about the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? And Jesus spends some time talking about the nature of the kingdom here, according to verse 3. By the way, we have a a podcast that we do as a church where we uh, uh, oftentimes a couple of the pastors go and, and 
talk about stickier and more complex issues. And in the coming weeks, one of the things that we're going to talk about is the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? So if you're not familiar, the, the podcast is called All of the Above. You can punch it in, just punch in All of the Above Greer, and it should come up. It's a lovely white picture with a lovely design, if I may say so myself. Um, and we're going to talk about the kingdom here in a couple of weeks. We talked about election and predestination a few weeks ago. And we've addressed all sorts of other issues like that in the past. So uh, just be on the lookout for that. Now, verse 3, Jesus is teaching on the kingdom, but he's also presenting himself alive to his disciples after his death and resurrection with many proofs. All right, so what Luke is telling us is that Jesus actually died and he actually rose from the dead, and he spends 40 days making a wide array of appearances to prove to his followers that he's alive. For many of us who grew up in the church, and especially around you know, springtime and Easter, it, just, it can often lose its impact, the central claim about our faith, that Jesus was dead and Jesus isn't dead anymore. Jesus died, literally, for real, passed away, and literally came back to life three days later. And what's worth pointing out here is his disciples had a difficult time with that. Like maybe oftentimes when we, when we think about the early church, we think about this group of gullible, superstitious people who weren't quite as, I don't know, educated or thoughtful as we are, and they just kind of swallowed stuff wholesale. It was like, of course, the, those ancient peoples, of course they would believe things like that. But the founding documents actually tell us that they struggled to understand and that Jesus spent 40 days with them. Like, you want to touch my hands? You want to eat fish with me? I'm here. You can, you can, we can talk. I can explain things to you. I died, and I'm not dead anymore. Jesus spent time eating and cooking and walking and visiting. He's seen by his friends and a whole host of others. Again, it's, it's a wide array of resurrection appearances to show that Jesus has literally come back to life. And I love that the Bible itself recognizes how remarkable this claim is. Because this is the linchpin of the Christian faith. And notice in verse 4, Jesus tells them, stay in Jerusalem and wait. Wait. Wait for what? What are we to wait for? Jesus tells them, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, in passages like Isaiah chapter 32, we won't look at it. Places like Joel chapter 2, which we will look at in a few weeks. We're, pro- we're, we're given the promise of God's Holy Spirit coming to dwell in the midst of his people. But verse 5 indicates that Jesus is reminding him of his promise of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, he says, For John, that is John the Baptist, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, the word baptized literally means immerse, to like to douse or, or, or to dunk somebody in something. Jesus says, you remember John the Baptist baptized with water? What I'm getting ready to do is baptize you, to douse you, to immerse you with my Holy Spirit. And so go to Jerusalem and wait. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now this would have been a major question for the, for the apostles, for the disciples, because they, 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 they recognized that Jesus is alive, They've spent time with Jesus, they've touched his hands, they've seen him eat fish, it's like they've come to the conclusion he's alive, he has indeed triumphed over death, death can't hold him, crucifixion didn't stop him, crucifixion has stopped plenty would-be messiahs, but crucifixion did not stop Jesus. They, they, they remember the promises of restoring Israel to his former glory, they remember scriptures about Jerusalem being set up as the center of the world, they think surely all of this is going to come to pass now, Jesus 
Like, they're like, you know, previously we misunderstood a lot, and we see that now, and we get it now, but now is the time when you're going to set up the kingdom. Right, Jesus? I mean, you come back to life, you've, you've, you've risen triumphantly, there's angels, like, testifying to your appearance. Surely, Jesus, you're going to do something now. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus' answer is that it's the Father's prerogative to know when the future restoration will come to be. In other words, yes, the the kingdom has been inaugurated in my death, burial, and resurrection. The the, the kingdom has been kick-started. It's here and it's present. But there's coming a day when the kingdom will be fully consummated, some future date that the Father has not disclosed to us. But then he says in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be made into witnesses. Now back in... 2003, 2004, there's this guy, uh, you've probably heard of him, um, he's from somewhere in Ohio, uh, plays basketball, LeBron James, does that ring a bell for anybody? LeBron James, I, I remember Le- LeBron because he was a year ahead of me in high school, and I just remember, you watch highlights of people like that, and you're like, are we, how, <laughs> how is he, how can he do when I'm, like he's, he's a different kind of species almost, it feels like, just a, a freak athletically. And 2006, 2007, whatever it was, you remember there was this campaign that Nike did to kind of celebrate LeBron's uniqueness. What was the campaign slogan? You remember that? We are all witnesses. And there was this poster, and it had LeBron standing in the Nike check, and it said, we are all witnesses. And the point was that we have, we've been privileged to have this you know, unique opportunity to get to see such a freak athlete in person. Like, we're privileged to, to see this generational talent. That's the idea, Right. And when the scriptures talk about the, the, the disciples being made witnesses, I mean, it's saying literally the same exact thing. That the apostles were given the tremendous privilege of being able to see, to witness with their own eyes, Jesus. To see Jesus cast out demons and to see Jesus walk on water and to see Jesus raise people from the dead. To see him buried after having been crucified and then to see him resurrected. And Jesus says, my Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and it's going to unleash you as witnesses. People who've had the, the, the unique opportunity to see all of this stuff in flesh and real time. The word witness comes from the Greek word martyr. It's, it's, it's where we get our word martyr. And it literally means something like to see, to, to, in almost the legal sense, to have seen something with your own eyes. The word witness is used 13 times in Acts. It's used a few times in the legal sense where folks witnessed the stoning of Stephen, for instance. But most often, it's about the apostles witnessing with their own two eyes God's glorification of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus is telling these guys that you're going to go tell people about the things that I've done, about the miracles, about my power and my glory and might and my resurrection, soon to be his ascension. You're going to go tell people about the resurrected King Jesus and his kingdom. You're to testify regarding what you've seen me do. And then he says, you're going to go tell everyone what God has done with me, beginning in Jerusalem, then going to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He identifies the concentric circles from which this message is going to expand. 
You may notice in our little Acts of the Apostles logo, we're, we're taking this in three chunks. It's because the book of, organized, uh, the book of Acts rather, is organized around Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Luke organized the book to be structured along these concentric circles as the gospel expands outwards. Now, if you've been around church for any length of time, you've probably heard talk of witnessing or being witnesses in regards to evangelism. And it's one of those words that's kind of seeped into our Christianese, and it's, it's, it's easy to forget how literally it's used here in the scriptures. The apostles and us, we are witnesses. Of course, we're not witnesses in the same sense that the apostles were witnesses, of course not. They play a unique and fundamentally foundational role in the, that we'll, we'll see more on in a second in, in the story of, of the Bible. But we are witnesses to what God has done in Christ as testified in the scriptures and then downstream from that, witnesses to who he is for us in our lives. And so we too, in a sense, maybe a, a, they're capital W witnesses, we're lowercase w witnesses. Like our forefathers, the apostles, we have been commissioned as witnesses. And we hope that this language is reflected in our mission statement. What we hope to do at 407 Ridgewood Drive and beyond, we, we want to we testify to Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended. Now, I love this in verse 9. You're going to get used to, just get used to me saying this because I love so much about it. I'm going to say I love this a lot, but I do love this, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. At at what point do you think the disciples stopped being surprised by stuff? Because this was pretty remarkable. Verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, which sounds a lot like Luke 24, Jesus' resurrection, where two men in dazzling apparel appear. Verse 11. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What we're given here is a picture of Jesus ascending to occupy his throne. This is the completion of Jesus' ministry, and it's probably the, the piece of Jesus' ministry that gets the least amount of airtime, Jesus' ascension. I mentioned a couple of moments ago that there's several really foundational truths kind of tucked away in verse 2. This is where we see our first one, that Jesus is the risen and reigning king who has ascended to the right hand of God to take up ownership and, and, and to take up the, his status as ruler over all things. Let me ask you this. Let's think on this for a second. Where is Jesus right now? See it at the throne. You, you've done the, you know these answers, Ben. It's not, I'm not asking you. Where is Jesus right now? Is Jesus confined to these pages is Jesus confined to the cute stories that we tell about him? Is Jesus confined to our hearts as if Jesus' lordship was limited to what I grant him? Is Jesus in a tomb somewhere? No, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is alive and has been so eloquently stated. He is seated in the heavenly places, ruling over all things at the Father's right hand. I've prepared for you all a visual aid. This was... Um, if you have a child who was in the four or five class, they took this home last week. I'm just obsessed with this visual. I think it's great. Nate was very bummed that I took it away from him so I could preach with it. 
Notice here we have a cup and then attached with some kind of adhesive, cotton swabs representing the clouds, and then we have an artistic representation of the Lord Jesus, you know, suspended here. On the back here is the, the New City Catechism question number 49. The question is, where is Christ now? And the answer is that Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And what the kids do is they pull the string and it would show, kind of represent Jesus ascending into the heavens. And I think it's brilliant. And this is exactly what Luke is telling us took place in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 and following. The heavens, the clouds here, early Christians didn't think that Jesus was actually up in the sky as if God actually is in the sky. Clouds and heavens in the Old Testament are associated with glory in the realm of God. Jesus is being taken up into the glorious place where God dwells. Paul the Apostle says it like this in the scripture we just looked at last Sunday. Ephesians 1 verse 19. Paul prays, May you know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is Jesus' ascension. It's a crucial part of the story. The creeds of old mention this act because they recognize this is the moment when Jesus is enthroned as king over everything. And Jesus' ascended shadow is cast all over the book of Acts. It's the starting off point for everything that takes place in the book of Acts. Shortly after this, Jesus he ascends into heaven and then Jesus from heaven sends his Holy Spirit. Jesus is preached of and spoken of as king. Jesus' name goes before all manners of rulers and kings as the one true king. In fact, we find out one king dies because of his cavalier take on King Jesus. And Jesus behaves as king even within this book, judging Ananias and Sapphira, judging Herod, still demonstrating through his church his power over Satan, sin, and death. His powers extend to his disciples, and they go about doing all the same things that Jesus did. So Jesus ascends, but far from being an absentee king, Jesus is present on every page of this book. And he's active through his Holy Spirit, which is the second major idea, that Jesus sends his Holy Spirit. Jesus says, you'll receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. And he's going to indwell you, and he's going to care for you, and he's going to guide you, and he's going to convict you, and he's going to cut like swords through you. He's going to lead. He's going to strengthen you. Remember verse 1. I told you about all that Jesus began to do. Now Jesus continues to do by his Holy Spirit. This is a decisive moment in church history. Unlike any moment that has come before, the arrival of the Spirit breaks the timeline in half. Never before has the Holy Spirit been poured out in its fullness in the way that Jesus gives it to his apostles and his church. So verse 12, the disciples, after being told that Jesus would return in the same manner that he left, verse 12, we're told that they return, make a return of their own, to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. That's another Judas. 
All these were, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They're praying, they're in one accord, the disciples and the, the, the ladies who followed Jesus. Characters from the gospel returning for a second season. They're praying, and you have to imagine how rich with expectancy that this moment was. The Spirit is going to fall on us. We will be empowered by the Lord himself. But notice, there's only 11 disciples named. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his, uh, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Peter stands up and he recounts Judas's betrayal. Verse 16, he says that the scripture had to be fulfilled. This word had is translated from the Greek word day, which means something like it is necessary. It's used 40 times in Luke and Acts, 22 times in Acts. This seems to be Luke's way of saying that there's a divine necessity, that there was something that had to take place. Peter's telling us that it always had to be this way. That lest we think about Judas as some sort of obstacle that you know, Jesus fortunately overcame, an unexpected wrinkle, Peter's telling us that Judas had always been the plan. That Judas' betrayal of Jesus had always been the plan. He quotes two Psalms, two Davidic Psalms about David being betrayed to say that the pattern has always been there and it only makes sense that it would happen to Christ as well. But they need a replacement, a 12th. But why the replacement? Why is it so essential here that Peter stands up and identifies Judas betrayed them and then leads the disciples to fill out the number 12? This is our third point. Jesus works through his church by the Spirit. What we see in this text, and what we see all throughout Acts, is that Jesus is intent on establishing for himself a new people. What's so significant about the 12? It's also worth noticing that in verse 15, we're told that there's 120 people in attendance, 12 times 10. In the Old Testament, there were the 12 tribes of Israel, and Peter sees what Jesus is doing in selecting 12. Now, this is to be a new people, a new people of a new covenant. Jesus founding a new community here. And it's one of the most important bits in all of Acts that a new people is created and commissioned to make Jesus known. Verse 21. So one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. The replacement had to have seen Jesus' ministry. That's key for the role of witness, right? So the apostles, they had to have been someone that saw all of Jesus' ministry. And two guys emerge, Justice and Matthias. 
They ask the Lord for guidance. They cast lots. It lands on Matthias, and the Lord chooses his 12th apostle, and off to the races they go. All of this in chapter one builds to this one idea. The unstoppable purposes of God and Jesus. The unfolding of the Father's sovereign plan to send his spirit to create and commission a people to make Jesus known. There's three things that we hope comes from our study of Acts. First, we hope that we that, that TCGS that we are reassured in our calling as the church. There's a lot of uncertainty these days. As I mentioned earlier, the future of the West, the future of the church in the West. What is religious liberty and religious freedom going to look like for us moving forward? There's a lot that we don't know the answer to, and there are legitimate reasons for concern about where we're headed. But friends, this is the same God, the same Jesus, the same spirit, the same mission, the same purpose, the same sovereign hand, the same sovereign design, the same enemy opposing with the same intensity, the same issues, the same sufferings, and Jesus hasn't budged. In a way, Acts is a present tense picture of God's purposes in history. Through suffering, through opposition from Satan, as the gospel advances. These are our people. This is what they experienced, and this is what we experience. We have a common life with them, and the same spirit that energizes them energizes us, and we can be assured that God's church will be built. Jesus will be made known. And it's our choice as to whether or not we want to we get on, we want to get with that grain. We want to get on board with what God will do. We can be reassured in our calling as the church by what these brothers and sisters experience. And we hope that in light of all of the questions and the uncertainty that we receive a kind of bulletproof clarity about who Jesus is and what he will do from Acts. The second thing that we hope comes from this study is that we have a renewed vigor and passion to be the church. These stories are unbelievable. If you've ever read through Acts, I mean, you could just, just list off all of the things that take place. It is, it is amazing. You have snake bites and shipwrecks and people falling asleep and dying when people are preaching. You have dramatic conversions. You get scales from eyes. You get a divine approval to eat barbecue. It's unbelievable. In these stories, we find our roots and we find our identity. We see more in common with this story than any other story. These are our people. These are our kingdom brothers and sisters. And so let's see all that they do and let it renew us and excite us and strengthen us to go and be and do all of the same things. Evangelism and discipleship. Generosity and hospitality. Worship celebrating that, they counted, that they're counted worthy enough to suffer for the name of Jesus. Let's read what they do and let's be excited to go and do likewise. We pray that our vigor and passion to be the church is renewed by the study. And then the last thing is we pray that awe comes upon every soul. One of my favorite bits of Acts is at the end of Acts chapter 2. It talks about how the Lord just blessed the early church. And it says that kind of in this moment, awe falls upon every soul. That as they're, as they're uh, living life alongside one another, filled with the Holy Spirit, as followers of the risen and reigning Jesus, it just shakes all of them in the best kind of way. And we pray that 
through the power and brilliance of God that this amazing story, a story that we identify with, that it would settle on us and give us a fresh sense of awe about what it means to be Jesus' people. And the great joy it is to get to be Jesus' people together. May we live out our own little acts in continuity with the millions of others who are doing the same thing, built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. If you're not a Christian, I hope that as we study this book that you are drawn in, that you are arrested by what you see in this book, this incredible story, and what God does through his people as a result. As always, in our bulletins, we provided a couple of questions for reflection um, to just consider this evening. In the next couple of moments, um, I'm going to pray to conclude this time, and the band's going to come back up, and we will uh, just provide some space for us to sit and pray and think about these questions and ask the Lord and his Holy Spirit to speak to you and to confront places in your heart where you need to respond. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we go to you as the sovereign ruler over all things. And we pray that we would be strengthened by the knowledge that you reign over all things, the knowledge that you will accomplish your purposes through your church. We pray for our church family that we would, that we would indeed be reassured by our study through Acts reassured in your permanence and, and in your strength and in your sovereign plan that is behind and, and upholds everything. We pray that we, would be, uh, that we would be energized as we read this story, and that we would find creative and unique ways to do what our forefathers in the faith did and, and sharing tables and um, having all things in common and even, even standing up boldly to opposition preaching the gospel with urgency and clarity. And we pray that there would be a kind of awe that would settle upon us. Again, just awe as to what you've done in Jesus, awe that you have invited us to be a part of this. And I do pray for any folks who are in our midst who are not yet believers, that there would be something striking about this gospel and this Jesus and, and this group of followers that come in his wake. Lord Jesus, we love you. We hope in you. We want to hope in you more. We want to be formed into you, Jesus. We want to be, we want to look like you. We want to act like you. We want to live and breathe like you, Jesus. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work that in us and that you would make us this, this community of believers into a rich and vibrant, um, devoted and faithful group of followers of you. We love you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.